Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. This is episode 25 of the Silver Emotion Podcast. And while I'd like to say that we got a special episode planned for you, we've actually got the most average and not special podcast ever in the history of podcasts. We're going for mediocrity. What a twist. We're going to do it. Are you with me? Ask me if I give a shit. Ask me if I give a shit. All right, everybody, welcome. Uh, This is episode 25 of the Silver Emulsion Podcast, the uh, ill-planned and uh, (laughs) ill-conceived podcast of my uh, film review website, silveremulsion.com. I realized the other day that I I uh, I never talk about like well I never mention the website like go to the website silveremotion.com. Um, I'm just a bad like uh, self self what do they call that self uh, promotion self promotion. I'm a bad self promoter. Uh, but it doesn't matter. It, I, I would imagine that if you. Uh, if you're listening to this, you probably know about the website, and so I feel uh, like, what's the fucking point of talking about the website? Uh, so, yes, I am, uh, not prepared. (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm probably as prepared as I ever am. Um, I got some notes, I got some movies, and, uh, this episode... I'm going to be talking about the Wong Kar Wai film, Chunking Express. And then I'll have some other movies uh, towards the end that I'll probably talk a little bit about. I don't know. Probably, well, whatever. In predictions, I say that one I will talk a little bit about. Other two will be less. Like, maybe not that much. Um, at the end of the episode, I'll probably... <laughs> You know, be three hours in and be like, well, I guess that was a stupid prediction. <laughs> uh, so look forward to that. That's coming up later on the show. That's <laughs> um, one thing that you can count on. Me uh, making an ass of myself, talking uh, to myself. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm surprisingly good at it, um, in, in uh, as I see it, anyway. Um, I don't want to toot my own horn. But I think I'm good at making an ass of myself. <laughs> Do you concur? <laughs> this is the question. Um, so, feedback. Man, I'm like all over the fucking place today. I uh, just had some coffee. It's not the nighttime, which is which is uh, probably the reason why I'm a little more peppy. <laughs> oh, peppy la pew. <laughs> all right. Feedback. What do I have for feedback? I have two feedbacks. I like calling them feedbacks. <laughs> like, just <laughs> like uh, shit that makes no sense, you know? Okay, so feedback. <laughs> uh, the first feedback uh, comes from 
Stephen. And in relation to the uh, the dumb fuck dude with the machine gun that I talked about in, in the Eco Waste movie Headshot, uh, Stephen says, you know, I bet that guy with the machine gun knew he was in a movie and just thought he would have unlimited ammo, like most shitty action films. As for the mixed tone of Hong Kong films, that sounds familiar to some of the anime that I watch. And I love it when it can juggle multiple genres and styles at the same time. The strangest and most consistent tone shifts in anime are in comedies, which usually stop being comedies and turn serious at the end. Excel Saga, for instance, has the director as a self-inserted character in the show, and somewhere in the final episodes he pops up acting like an addict who needs his joke fix and is suffering through withdrawal 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 you missed an L but add it in withdrawal <laughs> if only I could do a god jammy start <laughs> that wasn't too bad <laughs> um, and then uh, it goes on it's very weird to see <laughs> what a <laughs> <laughs> it's very weird to see uh, one of the tone shifts in action, and I still don't think I've gotten used to it. But I think that's why I like it so much. It's an experience that I that can still throw me for a loop, so it doesn't feel old and stale to me, at least not yet. Well, Stephen, I would hope that these uh, wonderful tone shifts don't don't ever grow old, because they're fun. And I think that uh, American films would do better. I mean, they, they would. Uh, th- I would enjoy them more if they took some pages out of the uh, the tone shift department. I mean, not everything needs it, obviously, but um, I enjoy it. I enjoy it a lot. Uh, <laughs> I have seen it in anime as well. Um, the thing with like like Hong Kong movies is it's not it's not so much just uh like oh this was a comedy and then it turned serious at the end um like it's it's like in a fucking moment on a dime <laughs> like uh all of a sudden there'll be like hardcore fucking gore in a fucking just a straight comedy and then it'll just go back to right like fucking cheery comedy like nothing happened and just real quick like that like the the most recent movie that Sammo Hung directed called The Bodyguard that movie is a very sweet charming movie it starts off the the fucking intro credit sequence is all like uh kids fucking stick figure drawings of like Sammo Hung and and uh cuz he plays an old guy that that befriends uh his young neighbor girl that um reminds him of his granddaughter anyway um so it's like all these stick figure drawings and it's real light and real fun and it's just sort of you know there's some some serious elements that are also occurring but then like you you expect some violence because of the way that the movie has been going, but that there's one part in the movie where it just fucking shifts to like some of the most hardcore violence like ever in a fucking Sam Hung movie. It's like 
like super fucking hard R, like nuts violence, and then it just goes right back to this cheery fucking tone. <laughs> I love it. I fucking love it. Um, not something that everyone's gonna like. I feel like um, you would like Hong Kong movies if you if you got more into them. Um, it it takes a special kind of a person to really go along with it. I feel like a lot of people watch Hong Kong movies and they don't necessarily get it. Like I, I'll see a lot of reviews or or whatever. Um, well, I don't know what else I'm seeing. <laughs> Skywriting. <laughs> uh, I'll see a lot of reviews where people are are talking about how. Uh, you know the tone is inconsistent or or you know it should pick a tone or what whatever like that especially with with Hong Kong movies being reviewed and to me when I see that it's just like well that's fucking Hong Kong movies I mean that's everything from the 80s on plays hard with tone I mean not everything obviously but a, a, a lot of movies especially Sam Hung movies but um, I feel like when when Sammo Hung really started like influencing the genre as a director in the eighties, I feel like that like plays through a lot of the movies. But it might just be like a Cantonese culture thing too, because Cantonese culture really flourished in the movies uh, in the eighties, the early eighties. Because I think I talked about it on one of these podcasts, but um, Shaw Brothers legitimized mandarin as like the primary genre the primary language of like quote-unquote good movies and cantonese movies were low budget and they were seen as like um just you know you couldn't have a movie that good and it's in cantonese so like um one-armed swordsman was the movie that like legitimized mandarin as the language but the people in hong kong spoke cantonese so eventually mid-70s ish uh, 73, 72, 74, 75. I should just name all the 70s. Um, but like 70, I know like 73, there was uh, a couple of Chor Yun movies in like 72, 73, House of uh, 72 Tenants. And there's a sequel in 73. Um, I haven't seen these, so I don't know. But they're comedies and they're Cantonese. And they started like opening the doors, and then the the Hui brothers um, started making movies in the mid '70s, I think. And those got really popular, uh, repopularizing Cantonese. And then also, um, Shaw Brothers movie called The Tea House was a big fucking huge hit. And then its uh, its sequel, Big Brother Chang, which is coming up on the site pretty pretty soon. Um, I just watched it, so probably in two weeks, I guess. Um, that one was like the biggest Shaw Brothers movie of 1975, and like they have a, a lot of dope fucking movies in '75, and so that for it to be that movie, and that movie is specifically Cantonese, and I don't know how many others that they did in Cantonese that year because they were still pretty firmly into Mandarin stuff. But anyway. Um, so I, I feel like it's a Cantonese culture thing to switch tones. Cause I know Stephen Chow, the, the comedian, the film comedian extraordinaire, um, 
he works a lot with um like the genre of his style of movie is called it's has a name and it means nonsense comedy it's like mole tao or something like that i don't know i don't remember but it's something like that it means nonsense and it means like like it basically means that it's not gonna follow a strict plot so much and they're just gonna throw a bunch of random shit in (laughs) and i haven't like delved too deep into that to be honest um Stephen Chow is one of those guys that I really um was not not against in my younger days but when I saw the movies um I saw a few when I was a kid or a teenager and and I don't know I didn't really get them and so I've watched a couple since I watched like the Royal Tramp movies um those are pretty like story based but there's a lot of weird shit too but anyway, those movies are super fun and funny and very enjoyable. So uh, I look forward to uh, watching more Stephen Chow movies. Um, so yeah, uh, fucking tones in sh- in action, shifting. <laughs> uh, shifting tones are, are dope. I enjoy them, and I think you would as well, because it seems like you like them in your anime. Uh, and I look forward to seeing some in anime as well. All right, and then I got another feedback uh, just just earlier today, uh, right in the nick of time, <laughs> so to speak, from a reader of the site, Nick. And Nick says, All righty, so I'm sending a quick feedback here about your iTunes inquiry uh, from this episode, I think. Uh, Yeah, the last one. I think that was on the last one. Uh, Well, I got my first Apple product in a long while recently and have my iTunes account running again. Basically, I went to their podcast section and searched for Silver Emulsion. Nothing. So then I downloaded your MP3 file from Podbean and loaded it through iTunes and also Windows Media Player. And so far, no good. No graphics or nothing. Not sure if that's exactly what you were asking about. Uh, Thought I'd reply, though. P.S. Upon my return home, I ordered a copy of Enter the Fat Dragon, Manhunter, uh, the uh, the new special edition Blu-ray that uh, Scream Factory put out, and an older uh, Nightbreed DVD. A word. Nick. Thank you, Nick. Um, That is... That is what I'm I'm asking about, basically. Um, there is a way to connect an artwork file with an MP3 file, and then uh, it will come up on your device of choice uh, with each episode. Or there is a podcast image that should theoretically be going out with the RSS feed. So I don't... Um, attach the image to the file I upload the file as it is and then Podbean asked me to put an image and I was wondering like I was wondering do they add that image to the mp3 tags so that then they're connected and it shows up on the readers um, such as iTunes or whatever Um, or is it just the the feed image which is the silver emulsion 
um, what you might call it, um, Shaw Brothers logo that I made. So, also, Jasper wrote in to say that when he listens to the episode, uh, he sees the Silver Emulsion Shaw Brothers logo. And so what that tells me is that Podbean is sending the main image via the RSS, and it is not attaching the other images to the episodes, um, and it, they just exist on the website. And so anytime I embed the player or whatever, it'll show up. But other than that, they don't show up. Um, when you search for uh, uh, Silver Emotion on iTunes, there shouldn't be anything that comes up because I'm not listed on iTunes. Uh, there's something about iTunes where uh, they you have to submit your podcast and then they approve it basically to get on the iTunes store and anybody can submit a podcast and get it on there they're they're not really picky about that um, but I from what I gather nowadays they they used to just like verify your feed and make sure everything is working and then put it up but now they apparently like uh do like YouTube shit where they content search for like copyrighted stuff and so because I use uh, music uh, from artists that uh, <laughs> uh, have copyrighted material um, I didn't even bother submitting it because not only do I I don't, I don't really care like <laughs> Like if people listen to this, honest, I don't know. I mean, I do care, but but uh, I don't think anybody's gonna find it on iTunes anyway, even if I put it up there. And I don't want to like, I want to keep it kind of under the radar. In that, I want to keep using the songs. And if somebody says, "Hey, you're using songs, stop it," F fucking, I don't want to have to like get into some battle about that. And then that's like, I can't use songs, and then I have to find songs that I can use and I don't I don't know I like how I do it now so I, I keep it kind of under the radar but specifically I was wondering if Podbean was sending out the uh, episode images or just the feed image so you have answered my question very well thank you very much Th that is that is very useful data that I will uh, use uh, I won't use it I just now I know uh, what it's doing um, and I, I, don't, I don't plan on changing it. I just was curious um, what what exactly it was doing. If you put your if you put the uh, the Podbean RSS uh, link like into the pod podcast section of iTunes and load it through there, like autom like uh, manually add it, you should. Um, then see that Silver Emulsion logo. If the data, if I'm processing the data correctly in my head, um, that should be what comes through as an image. Anyway, it's shit that doesn't matter. But um, thank you for that. I, I appreciate that and, and your thoroughness too. You went through a number of hoops for me. So thank you very much. And then um, you bought some DVDs. That's great. Enter the Fat Dragon. Um, that... Uh, is probably going to be a bootleg because I don't think it's had an official release uh, anywhere in the world. Um, 
on a DVD format. It's only been a VHS. Uh, so hopefully it's a good copy. Um, I don't. Uh, I don't. I mean, I don't mind bootlegs. I I fucking learned about Hong Kong movies through bootlegs, so I'm not gonna be like, oh, you shouldn't buy a bootleg. Uh, <laughs> I mean, obviously, if there's a real one, buy the real one. But um, in this case, I mean, fuck it. You want to see the movie? You gotta see the movie. Uh, <laughs> So I hope you enjoy that. Manhunter, obviously, I think I talked about not, not having seen that, but uh, hopefully the, the new Blu-ray looks nice. I'm sure it will. And the older Nightbreed DVD will be the theatrical cut, I imagine. Um, so hopefully you like that. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, it it was good enough to start a fucking cult of people that... Uh, created this uh, petition and a quest that eventually after many 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 years uh, resulted in uh, Scream Factory hunting down the the negative and putting together a new version of the movie um, there's a lot of steps leading up to that uh, such as people f- hunting down VHS work prints and, and cutting together these like fucking Frankenstein versions of the movie and then showing them theatrically, um, basically with Clive Barker's uh, consent. I don't know if it's like a legal consent, but he did, he was all about, like he was glad to see how dedicated fans were to his movie. Um, so yeah, so hopefully you enjoy that. And if you enjoy the theatrical Nightbreed, uh, I recommend the the director's cut because it's better but um i don't know i think because i saw the theatrical one first so i think the the director's cut plays a lot better because i i see the differences all right so that's the feedback and uh, i'm gonna go right into the main part of the show where i talk about chunking express the uh, Wong Kar Wai movie this movie is Wong Kar Wai's third movie uh, following As Tears Go By and uh, Days of Being Wild Uh, let me type this in okay so Chunking Express is 1994 and it has a pretty small cast the main people in the movie are um in the first story, the movie is, is broken up into two stories. So in the first movie, we, in the first story, uh, there is uh, Bridget Lin, the wonderful Bridget Lin, and uh, Takichi Kaneshiro. And the second story stars Tony Lung um, and uh, Fei Wong. Fei Wong is a um, like a big fucking Cantonese pop star. This was her first movie, I believe. She's fucking great in Chunking Express. And that's all you need to know. <laughs> uh, so, two stories. The first one is uh, based around Bridget Lin and Takichi Kaneshiro. Uh, Takichi Kaneshiro is a guy who has uh, recently broken up with his girlfriend and he's very very obsessed with her he's hoping to reunite with her and and rekindle the relationship 
and uh, he he's kind of like uh, trying to come to terms with that that it that it actually might be uh, breaking up, and so um, he gives it thirty days, and every um, every day he goes and buys a can of pineapples that uh, are set to expire on May first. Um, and this story starts like April 1st or whatever uh, April whatever whatever's 30 days or 31 days I don't know I don't know if they say the days who cares anyway so he buys a can of pineapples May 1st every day um, so he's got 30 31 cans by the end of the month basically and uh, at the same time uh coinciding with this guy and his sort of sad um, existence in the world where he's just focused on the fact that he, he has lost this girl and he's, he calls her and he tries to talk to her and stuff but nothing really nothing's going and and so there's people that try to talk him out of his hole and be like you know come on you you gotta move on this shit is over with she ain't coming back uh, you know, move on. <laughs> Come on. Um, but this guy is, it, is this romantic sort of character creature who who uh, believes in these sort of uh, investing um, power in these sort of totems. You know, he's a dreamer. He's thinking like, oh, I'm going to buy these pineapples, and it's very symbolic of of my love, and also the. Uh, the fact that it that these pineapples expire and specifically with the pineapples he's talking about like how like so much work goes into producing a can of pineapples from the growing of the pineapple and the harvesting and the you know every the canning and all this shit all this shit goes into the the canning and at some point they will expire and they will be thrown away and so he's basically he talks about how like is love uh similar to that uh, and I don't think that these are spoilers because the way that the movie is structured, it's it's so much more than just these little um, insights or whatever. It's 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 totally different. But anyway, one of the main guys that that tries to talk him in, talk some sense into him, is the guy uh, who runs the food um, food shop or diner. It's not really a diner, but um, this guy runs runs the the place where where Takichi Kanashiro hangs out and like uses the phone and stuff, and uh, he's like, oh, you know this this girl that works here, you should try to go out with her. She's really nice, whatever. And he, you know, he's just like, ah, whatever. I don't I don't care. Um, I forget where I was going with that, but uh, the guy who plays the 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 guy who owns the the shop oh that's where i was going with it anyway the guy who plays the the owner of the shop uh his name is piggy chan and he's fucking awesome i fucking love him he's he's so good in this movie um he's only in a few movies he's he's not in much so i don't know um what he like what his real like job is because he's only in like a movie here and there um, but whatever he is, he's fucking great in this movie. But what I was going to say is that the the title, Chunking Express, refers to uh, this food uh, place 
which is called The Midnight Express. And the first part of this movie apparently takes place in um, these uh, Chungking mansions uh, in a part of Hong Kong. And it's like a, a cheap place to live um, in in this area of Hong Kong or whatever. I don't know a lot about it. I'm just looking at the Wikipedia. But anyway, this is where most of the movie uh, takes place. So uh, it's Chungking Express, the, the, you know, putting them together. Whatever. It's, um, it's not important. But what is important is Takeshi Kaneshiro is buying pineapples. And at the same time, um, concurrently to this, uh, is Bridget Lynn's character. And she's um, she works for a guy who's trying to smuggle drugs. And she does a lot of, of work to get these Indians uh, made up with suits and, and suitcases. And gets them all ready to go like they're businessmen traveling. And they pack all this fucking coke and heroin and shit, whatever... Uh, pack it into all these fucking crevices of their shoes and all this shit and uh, so she's supposed to get this all together and then right at the last minute all the fucking Indians just disappear and they're gone the, the fucking drugs are gone the people are gone everything's gone and like it's all on her and so now she's fucked and so we've got this character who's who's fucked <laughs> and this other character who uh is fucked but is also actively like keeping himself in that situation so we got this guy who who has been dumped and is wallowing in it and you know and and part of losing a relationship or something is always sort of um natural or like you can't get out of it i mean you, you just it's a natural thing to sort of grieve um, but this guy, I feel like he's like he he's such a romantic and like a dreamer of 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 these kind of romantic ideals that that he's going to do this symbolic act of buying all this pineapples. And then he imagines at some point that that she's going to call him and be like, you know what, I rethought it. And then he'll attribute this this great fortune to the the act of buying all these pineapples. Um, so he's sort of, he's fucked, and he's contributing <laughs> to his uh, fucked situation. And then uh, the Bridget Lynn character is fucked, and she's fucked. Like, she can't do anything about it. She's in it, and she's forced into it. And it's of no fucking uh, doing of her own part. It's some shit just happened. Somebody double-crossed her or whatever, and now she's fucking forced into this situation of being fucked. And so those characters kind of come together at some point during this first story, and that's the first story. And the movie is not so much about plot. It's about these characters and how they interact and how they interact with the world. And so... I find the the structure of these characters to be incredibly interesting. And this movie is just so fucking like charged with with energy 
and like the feeling of of being out on the streets at night and that's something that that Wong Kar Wai does probably better than anybody else like around the world like this fucking guy can capture that energy of being out at night with the fucking city like alive around you and you just feel that energy and that's how Wong Kar Wai movies feel this is the first movie that really truly 100% captures that and Days of Being Wild has some of that and As Tears Go By also has some of that but not to this same level of um, like both of those movies the previous movies still seem like they're working off traditional movie standards like the first movie is is a bit of, of Wong Kar Wai's experimental nature but primarily it's a A to B plot that uh, is not unlike a lot of other Hong Kong crime movies I think in terms of feeling it it doesn't feel anything like those movies but um, just in terms of structure it is kind of similar um, but you see him kind of reaching for later uh, Wong Kar Wai stuff um, whether he knows it or not he's just his natural inclination is to kind of go for something like that um Days of Being Wild sees him get closer, but it's still somewhat based on a straight plot. It's way more experimental, and when I say experimental, I don't mean, like, really, truly way out there fucking, you know, there's no characters, and it's just the fucking colors for an hour and a half. But, you know, like, um, just experimental structurally, where... It's just, it's unique. And so Days of Being Wild has some of that as well. Um, and it's a great fucking movie. But honestly, and I know on that episode I talked something about like, oh yeah, everyone's talking about fucking Chunking Express, but man, Days of Being Wild deserves some talk. It's fucking good. And I agree with myself. <laughs> and I still like feel that way. But watching Chunking Express, and this is the first time I've seen it in, a good 10 years or so. I mean, this movie <laughs> this movie hits like a fucking freight train. It's so goddamn good and it's easily the best one car wide movie of his first 3. Um which is why it became uh the movie that sort of put him on the international map. Uh in part because of uh the US release that uh, Quentin Tarantino um put together or whatever I think that helped uh, Wong Kar Wai's status a lot um, it introduced him to the US market for sure and then um, I don't know that like he's ever been like super well liked in America or anything like most people don't know who the fuck he is but like straight up um, film snob people or whatever I you'd have to be pretty hardcore to have seen like as Tears Go By and Days of Being Wild before Chunking Express back in the early 90s, that would be, I mean, you'd be fucking into Hong Kong movies. And most American sort of film snob people, Hong Kong movies are well overlooked. Like, they're, they're 
they're not really in the conversation. Let's let's say that. Um, the thing that I like about all of the characters is that in in some way, every one of the characters is a dreamer. And I don't know what that means, and I don't even know what the movie says about that. But I found it interesting. How is Bridget Lynn a dreamer? That's a little more shaky. Um, the fact that she's wearing a wig and sunglasses shows that, like, okay, she's disguising herself. She's dreaming of being somebody else. She's in this situation that she can't get out of and hopeless and dreaming of a way out of that. So it's a little shaky. But the other ones are a lot more uh, concrete. It also is interesting that that there's a character in there that, that Bridget Lynn uh, works with or, or for or whatever. I don't know what the exact um, nature is. And there's another girl that he has sex with in in the movie and he has her like put on the blonde wig and and so in a way like she is a dream <laughs> sort of, it's she's this guy's dream so Bridget Lynn is like this dream made reality or something I don't know I don't I, I don't have anything deep to say about it but it, these are just random thoughts that I had and I'm not looking at my notes or anything so maybe I said something better um, when I was more uh, more in the, the fucking headspace of the movie. Uh, but anyway, the second story is concerned with Tony Lung, who is a cop who was dating a stewardess, and now they're not dating anymore. Or I think it starts and they're still dating, but, but uh, then they break up at some point. Um, and he has the beat around where the Midnight Express shop is. And so he goes there every night and buys some food and takes it to his girlfriend. And, and so, yeah, so, yeah, they were together at the beginning. And um, in, in there's a girl that works there at the beginning, and now she's gone, and they hire a new girl who is Fei Wong. And Fei Wong is fucking all about the Mamas and the Papas song California Dreamin'. So she's, she's all about that. Um, and she's obviously the most literal sense of the dreamer because she's listening to California Dreaming and uh, as the movie goes on, she like sort of creates this dream <laughs> fucking reality where she's um, dating Tony Lung but she's actually uh, basically just stalking him and, and fucking with his apartment. And Tony Lung is so fucking, like, oblivious and lost in the despair. <laughs> like, like, he's so much in this fucking place where, like, his fucking apartment is changing around him literally like the sheets have been changed and and all this shit that clearly could not be done by like without somebody doing them he's fucking oblivious to that and he sees it as the the apartment's organic representation 
of its feelings about the end of the relationship. So, like, there's an old towel that he uses to do dishes with, and it's fucking tattered as shit. And it gets replaced by Fei Wang with a new towel. Tony Lung sees the new towel, and he's just like, oh, you know, you, you, you've changed so much. You know, I don't... <laughs> I don't know how to describe it, but he's he's talking to the towel, and he's he doesn't think like he doesn't think of it as a a new towel. He thinks of it as the same towel um, that has sort of reformed itself into a a whole person again, or a whole towel again. And so, as he's sort of rebuilding this internal sort of life for himself um, mentally the the apartment is also doing that as well due to Fei Wong's uh, fucking dreamland version of, of the romance like she can't just have a romance with him she can't take that step to say oh I like you or whatever and he's so oblivious to it that he doesn't even fucking notice anything um, so it's just again great fucking characters put together in great situations and it's fun as fuck like it's such a good fucking movie i don't <laughs> like uh uh let's see let's look, go to the notes and see if i have anything uh, good to say uh the camera is active and communicating visually yeah well that's fucking Wong Kar Wai for you um very active camera obviously uh, if you've seen any of his movies, he keeps it moving. This movie, in in particular, is uh, the camera is moving a lot and very um, emotional and evocative, and just sort of really strange angles and really unique uh, ways of looking at things. And in the same way, it's it's a really interesting way of looking at the way people come together and the way people deal with that and the way that people fall apart and all kinds of shit like that. Like, it's such an interest, interesting, unique way of approaching all of these things that it approaches. Um, th- there's, like... <laughs> Like, I don't know. It's just, it's so fucking good. It's just so fucking good. Uh, there's a stuttered sort of slow-mo thing that I don't know how to describe, but um, it's it's almost like, like uh, how do you describe it? It's, it's like if you're watching life, and action, like a lot of action, like people running and sh- like real shit happening, but you watched it in flashes. So like you you open your eyes, close your eyes, open your eyes, close your eyes. And so that doesn't even make any sense. Um, <sighs> I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It's um, I'm like kind of lost in this moment. But um, anyway, how I described it in my notes was I saw the stuttered slow-mo as a way 
for Wong Kar Wai to communicate this sort of idea of memory and how memory is not a strict fucking recording. It's not like a like a film camera or well a film camera is is still the illusion of movement. 24 frames a second is like the lowest number of frames that you can make to make it uh, imperceptible. Like you can see movement perfectly with 24 frames a second um, unless you're moving the camera or something like that where it gets the stutter thing. But um, I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. (laughs) But basically... Um, like 24 frames a second on film is still just 24 frames played at a rate of 24 frames a second that then becomes life but it's not it's not a straight recording like video and that's why video looks so different because it is way more frames a second and it is closer to reality Um, and so memory is like this this sort of imprint on your brain of this time in place however fucking long ago and it's it's morphed over time because you're remembering things a little differently or or certain elements have been added by your memory because of other memories that are similar whatever memory is just this weird sort of uh inconsistent sort of thing that that you remember and you may remember shit that's wrong. You may... Re- whatever, you know. But anyway, it's it's not a perfect thing. And even if your memory is fucking great, you can't, in your brain, like, replay a moment, start to finish, exactly as it was. It is always an interpretation of that moment, right? So, I see these moments of stuttered fucking movement of stuttered action specifically is when he uses it a lot as these moments of of comment on the like the the fallibility of memory why <laughs> do i think this other than that's how I see it, like, what is that, how does that, like, uh, play into um, the movie? I don't know. Um, I would say that, like, with with the male characters, they both have a, a female who has left them, and they are both remembering things about that probably inconsistently especially with Takeshi Kinoshiro who's who's really romanticizing the past um where like Tony Lung is not so much romanticizing the past but just sort of uh trying to I don't know like he thinks about it but he's not necessarily sad about it he's just kind of going through it it's hard to describe but anyway, I feel like some sort of level of memory is is being engaged <laughs> with these stutter things. I don't know. I've spent too much fucking time talking about this. Um, now, in, in, in trying to talk about why this movie is so great, 
um, I wrote down a thing while I was watching it that's it's hard to articulate why Chunking Express is great and I think that's true because it's really an experience more so than it is a movie like it's hard to describe because it is just these moments in these characters lives edited together but it's much more than that like it's not a plot I mean things happen there's a start and a finish but it's so much more than that and if you haven't seen it it's hard to really comprehend that and I think I mean people watch this and they don't like it too uh, which I don't understand at all <laughs> to be honest because this movie is just I don't know what is that beeping something's beeping oh oh I hit my thing okay Okay, the beep has uh, subsided. <laughs> uh, but but in, in trying to describe it, in my notes I wrote, it's like life. It's beautiful, it's unique, it's everything, and it's nothing. It's just so fucking good. <laughs> and I fucking, I, fucking uh, I sound so pretentious or whatever, writing something like that. But I, I honestly don't know how else to describe Chunking Express. It's a fucking experience. I highly recommend it to everyone. And if you don't like it, you don't like it. But I doubt you will completely forget it. it, it um, it's fucking great. Um, that was another thing about the guys uh, in my notes. Tony Lung is very unable to see the details um, like he sees the environment as this changing expression of his inner self like dealing with it, the fucking torment of being dumped um, but he doesn't see he sees the whole picture as this ever evolving sort of thing but he doesn't see the details and the f one of the first things we hear from Takeshi Kaneshiro is like super fucking minute detail where he says that like like he brushes Bridget Lin's character um uh like they they they're I don't forget where they are but they're somewhere and they brush up against each other and he says something like I came 0.001 centimeters from her <laughs> and little did I know that fucking 50 hours later I would fall in love with her or some something like that it's something like that I don't remember the the numbers or if if that the 50 hours thing was was somebody else I think it's 57 hours hmm. I don't remember uh, but anyway it doesn't matter and like like Tony Lung doesn't even notice uh, like Fei Wong is all about playing California Dreamin and so then there's a part where California Dreamin starts playing and like he doesn't even fucking notice that it's the same song or that he every time he sees her this fucking song is playing he's just like oh yeah that's just some fucking thing like he's so oblivious to all this shit that's going on around him Whereas 
Tony uh, uh, Takeshi Kinshiro is more like fucking hyper focused on every fucking detail, and and so to the point of like I have to get a fucking can of pineapples every day with the same expiration date, and it's gonna mean something. These details mean something, but do they? I don't know. I don't, and that's what's great about this movie. It's ambiguous. It's up to you. It's a fucking great movie. Or is it? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I don't know. But but just fucking watch. If you haven't seen it, you got to watch it. It's fucking great. Um, it's available as a disc from Netflix, I believe. Other than that, it's a little bit hard to come by uh, because all of the, the DVDs have gone out of print. Although... There is a Korean release on uh, eBay. There's a seller on eBay in Korea selling the Korean release, uh, which I recently picked up, and it was I think seven or eight dollars total uh, with the shipping, and it's basically uh, the the same DVD release of the the, the Quentin Tarantino version of the DVD, and it looks great. It's fucking awesome. It's the one I have, and it's like seven eight bucks total, whereas the out-of-print U.S. releases are anywhere from, like, 50 to 100 to 150. Like, the fucking Criterion release that's out-of-print now is is worth crazy money, I guess, because that's what people will pay for it. But I, you know, I'll just wait until it gets another release eventually, maybe. I don't know. Or I'll catch one that, you know, people put the wrong price on or something, I'll get it for 10 bucks. <laughs> maybe. We'll see. Um, I've done it before, though, so I, I am patient. Uh, but if you haven't seen it, definitely see it. That Korean release is all region, so it'll play on any DVD player, too. So just, you know, you don't have to worry about having a multi-region player or anything like that. Uh, or a VHS. Fuck it. Fucking go to the thrift store. You could probably find a VHS of that of that Quentin Tarantino um, Rolling Thunder release. Uh, I know I've seen it in multiple thrift stores in my area, uh, so it's probably in one near you as well. And I don't remember if that that was probably a letterboxed VHS too. So, hey, uh, it's better than nothing, right? All right, I'm gonna take a little break, and then I'll be back with three more uh, movies, uh, briefly talking about them. <laughs> No, that's right. That's that's not too fast at all. Yeah, that's good. Go ahead. All right, I'm back, and uh, the first movie I'm going to talk about is Sammo Hung's Winners and Sinners, and this is the first movie of the. Uh, very popular and uh, very successful uh, Lucky Stars movies. Uh, there was this movie, and then there was two more with Jackie Chan called My Lucky Stars and Twinkle Twinkle Lucky Stars. And I watched this movie on Sunday. And uh, coincidentally, on that very same day, 
Sammo Hung made an announcement at a, uh, I don't know what it is, some convention where, where people are uh, shopping movies and trying to get uh, distributors and stuff like that. I don't remember what it is, but it's something where a bunch of Hong Kong people were at. Um, I know that like Golden Harvest, um, the people that own Golden Harvest, uh, all their movies, Fortune Star, they were trying to sell um, the rights to Golden Harvest movies uh, for licensing for, for DVDs and stuff. So maybe somebody bought them and we'll, we'll see some U.S. releases. I doubt it, though. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. Um, but anyway, uh, at the same convention, Sammo Hung announced that he's have uh, he's going to have a new company and they're going to produce a bunch of movies and one of them is uh, uh, Sammo Hung is going to direct a new Lucky Stars movie, and and it's it was announced as Return of the Lucky Stars, which is interesting because there was already a movie in the '90s, I think, called Return of the Lucky Stars that had um, a lot of the Lucky Stars in it. Not Sammo Hung, not uh, Yoon Byu, not Jackie Chan, uh, but all the other main guys from from the other ones. Uh, Eric Sang and Richard Eng and Stanley Fung and the other guys kind of go in and out uh, but those three are like the core lucky stars um, John Shum might be in that one but anyway uh, so I'm very excited I like the lucky stars movie quite a bit and so uh, hopefully everybody will come back um, including Jackie just fucking bring everybody back. That would be dope. Um, I don't know. I don't know that it's a good idea because it's probably better to to leave um, <laughs> leave the memories in the eighties. Uh, but Sam Hung is still a great director, so I have faith that if he's gonna do it, he's gonna fucking do it and make it good. Uh, okay. So I watched Winners and Sinners. This is the first Lucky Stars movie, and I love this movie. I've seen it before, and I continue to love this movie. It's a fucking great movie. It is the only Lucky Stars movie um, of the of the three with Jackie uh, that has John Chum, and I love him. He, they call him Curly a lot in this movie. Uh, he looks like... Um, he reminds me of Larry in the Three Stooges. <laughs> like, he has hair kind of like that. And he's a fucking hilarious actor. I really like him in this movie. He's in a bunch of other movies, too, that I've noticed him in since. Um, he has a, a series of movies with Richard Eng uh, called uh, the Pom Pom movies. There's Pom Pom, and then there's the fucking. There's a whole series of those. And those were coming out about this same time as well. Uh, but he's in a whole fucking shitload of movies. He's a producer as well. Anyway, he's he's in this movie uh, along with the main guys, Richard Eng and Stanley Fung. And uh, the other guys, the other winners and sinners, the other lucky stars are, who are they? Sammo Hung and Charlie Chin, who was also in uh, Eastern Condors. And I know I probably I know I probably 
I don't I honestly don't know if I singled him out in Eastern Condors, but I probably said something about him like, Oh, this is the fucking Lucky Star Sky. Oh, look at this <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I probably said some dumb shit like that. Anyway, they're all in this movie and they are all um sinners, I guess you could say. They're all thieves and the movie opens with them um all being caught, basically. And it's a very fun sequence. And then they all arrive in jail together and they forge a bond. And then they all, uh, because they were all, I guess, captured the same day, they were all released on the same day. And because they're friends, they all fucking, like, hung out afterwards. And John Shum's character, uh, he's... His uncle is, like, out of town, so him and his sister are are living at the uncle's house, and he says, hey, all you guys, why don't you come over and, um, you know, you can live there for a while. Uh, We got the place for a few months, so, you know, you can live there. So they go to this house, and the sister is absolutely gorgeous, and I should have pulled this up. Um, Hold on. I think her name is Cherry Chung, but I just want to be sure before I start saying shit. But I already said it, so uh, Sherry, Cherry, yeah, Cherry Chung. Anyway, so she's in it. She's fucking gorgeous, and all of the guys are very interested in uh, in John Shum's sister. So there's a lot of. Uh, sort of the guys kind of falling over each other and and trying to climb around each other not necessarily physically but just there's a lot of jockeying for position to be next to her or to to hold her hand or in any way to sort of uh get their foot in the door to maybe going out on a date with her and that's kind of a defining element of these lucky star movies um, at least the ones with Jackie Chan, because because I believe I said that there's there's I think two or three, if not a couple more, um, of ones that they did after Jackie left to do other stuff. Um, I know Samo was in at least one or maybe two of them, and then there's ones without him, and um, there's an there's another one where they. It's like a crossover movie with Aces Go Places. And it's called, like, Lucky Stars Go Places, I think. Anyway, eventually I'll, I'll watch all these things. Because I've been working through Aces Go Places very slowly. I need to watch the third one. It's been a while. Um, I have those. And then whenever I get through these Lucky Stars, then I'll continue on with, with the other ones. Uh, so that I've seen them all. So many Hong Kong movies. I love them. Um, so, so anyway, they're they're all. It's a defining element that that these guys who are bumbling and not your typical romantic leads at all in any way. Uh, these guys are trying to get a date, and so in this movie, it's very charming and it's not so gross. There's maybe a few moments that are kind of questionable in. I think it's My Lucky Stars. It's a lot more, like, gross, sort of questionable. 
Um, but I don't remember. And then in like the, I think in Twinkle Twinkle Lucky Stars is the one where they start out on on vacation in Thailand, and like <laughs> there's a fight with Sammo Hung where he fights a bunch of girls and he punches one of them like fucking right in the vagina. <laughs> like hardcore it's like a big it's a great shot i mean it's (laughs) i mean it's not a great shot but it's just the way that it's filmed with the action sam hung is really great at editing action and so that's it's edited in a way where you just are like oh my god he fucking just (laughs) he did that so hard but of course he probably didn't even hit her um but it's hong kong so maybe he did anyway it feels like, in in comparison to the other Sammo Hung movies that were all released leading up to this movie, this one feels a lot different. It feels more, um, I don't want to say mainstream, because I don't necessarily know what Hong Kong mainstream is, but like, it feels like a big studio movie. It feels like we're just going to make a fucking romp. We don't give a fuck. We got all these actors. They're all in this movie. They're not, you know, like Jackie Chan was a big rising star at the time, and he had already done um, his first movie in America, The Big Brawl, and there's a roller skating sequence in that movie, and so that inspired the roller skating sequence in this movie because Jackie Chan thought, like, oh, I, I did this one in this mo- in this American movie, but it was so, like, shitty, I could do so much more if I was allowed to do so much more. And so then they did it in this movie, and it's fucking incredible, um, as you would expect. Um, but, like, it feels so much bigger than his other movies. His other movies always have big ensembles, uh, the ones leading up to this, but but nothing like this. I don't know how to describe it. This one is just fucking fun. And everybody's having a good time, and it's fun. And the the main song, there's a Winners and thin- Sinners uh, theme song that Sammo Hung sings. And uh, according to the subtitles, I don't like so- song subtitles generally, but but on this one it, it helps because uh, the subtitles uh, say that the song is about learning to roll with life and have a good time be with your friends and and fucking learn how to laugh and have a good time and that's sort of how I see this movie Um, it is maybe a little episodic maybe it has some fucking plot holes or whatever things don't match up you know I mean it's like it's a movie so there's some big like contrived moments where it's like how would this fucking happen and and like, oh, really? That would happen? But in a movie like this, where it's like anything goes, none of that shit matters. It's just fucking have a good time. It's about creating a fun experience, and Sammo Hung created a fucking blast of an experience. I love this movie. Uh, I really do. And so that's Winners and Sinners. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Uh, specifically if you like Hong Kong movies it's a good one Uh, it's funny, it's fun it's got some dope fights not too much in the fight department but um, when they are there they're fan-fucking-tastic so that's that next movie I watched was I watched the third feature from Laurel and Hardy 
called The Devil's Brother. And The Devil's Brother uh, is based on a opera or something. Let's see if it says it here. It is based on the operetta Fra Diavolo about the Italian bandit the Italian bandit Fra Diavolo. And so um, they use the actual music composed in 1830 for the movie. So all of the songs, all of the music, maybe not all of the, the incidental music, but because they do do a version of the Laurel and Hardy, you know, they do that, but it's real slow and sort of in a, in a different style, the style that kind of fits this movie. Um, but most of the music, and it, if nothing else, the songs themselves, because it is kind of half musical, uh, those were all composed in 1830. So this movie is billed as a Laurel and Hardy movie, but they're actually supporting characters and the 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 main thrust of the movie is not involving them. Well, it involves them, but they are supporting characters to the real action. And there's some instances where they're like driving things forward, but for the most part, they're kind of in the background. Uh, there's some fucking hilarious shit in it. Uh, there's some shit where where Stan Laurel is playing this game that he calls Kneesy Earsy Nosy. <laughs> and he's like touching his knees and then he has to touch his ears and his nose at the same time with like alternating hands or some shit. And I don't know. It's it's fun just to watch him and then the other guys try to do it and it's they fuck up. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds stupid, but shit was funny and um, (laughs) another thing that I wanted to uh, mention about this movie is something that's in all of Laurel and Hardy's work is where Stan Laurel does some shit and then they cut to a close up shot of just uh, Oliver Hardy's face and he looks dead into the fucking camera (laughs) And he just has this look like, this motherfucker. Again? Can you fucking believe this shit? (laughs) And every fucking time it makes me laugh. I I love it so much. And so there's a couple of good moments like that in this one. Uh, But overall, it's probably about half and half good, half bad. Um, It's pretty boring. It's a full fucking 90 minutes, which is long for a, a, a feature from 1933, especially a comedy feature featuring uh, Laurel and Hardy. Most of their features at that time were were probably around 60, 65 minutes, maybe 70. Um, but uh, I don't know. I didn't really care for it, but it has some good stuff in it. And it's it's worthwhile to note that like this is the same year that they made their fourth feature also, which is Sons of the Desert, which is like one of their best movies. Um, and, and that's like focused on them. Uh, as I remember it, um, I will I will see more when I see it again. But anyway, that's The Devil's Brother. If you like Laurel and Hardy, um, I would say it's worth a watch. I don't know that it's worth like 
watching a bunch of times, but I've seen reviews saying that, oh, this is my favorite Laurel and Hardy. You know, I don't know how that came to be, but anyway, it's possible, I guess. Uh, and then I watched a spaghetti western called Man, Pride, and Vengeance, starring uh, Franco Nero and Klaus Kinski. And I say spaghetti western, but truth be told, Man, Pride, and Vengeance is only a spaghetti western after you've watched the first, like, 45 minutes of the movie. Uh, the beginning 45 minutes are roughly um, all, like, melodrama in this fucking town, fort thing. I don't know. Franco Nero plays a soldier who works at this fort in a town, in a city or something, and uh, they're protecting this factory, and they're sort of in charge of hiring people to work the factory, and... So it's just all very city-based. The, the first scene of the movie is Western. There, there's some fucking guy in the hills, and he's trying to avoid the soldiers, and it looks like Franco Nero, but then there was another part where it looked like it wasn't him, so I wasn't, I'm not completely sure that it was him or not. Um, later events in the movie led me to believe that it probably was him, but I didn't go back and watch it, so who knows. Anyway, does it matter? No, of course it doesn't matter. Uh, but anyway, the the first scene of the movie is Western, and you're like, yeah, okay, this guy's getting chased. What's going to happen next? Well, if you said fade into a fucking city and watch 45 minutes of not-Western <laughs> melodrama, uh, <laughs> you get a gold star, because who the fuck would have guessed that? Not me. And so I was kind of pissed off. You know, you're all geared up for a Western and then you get bait and switched into this fucking, like, romantic love story. You know, I mean, I'm fine with it. I was on board for a while, and then as it kept going on, it was like, is there is there a fucking Western here? You know, what the fuck? So eventually, there is a Western, and it's all right. <laughs> um... This movie, like Devil's Brother, is an adaptation of um, another work. The other work here is a novella called Carmen, which was also adapted as the famous uh, opera by Bizet um, called Carmen or something else like that. It's very famous. You probably know the, the songs from it, even though if, if, even if you're not an opera hound... I don't know. Is, is that what they call themselves? Opera hounds? <laughs> they all go to the fucking opera with those uh, Cleveland Brown <laughs> fucking uh, Cleveland Browns uh, <laughs> the dog masks. <laughs> their fucking shirts off. Their bellies all painted and shit. <laughs> opera hounds. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, so it's based on that. I don't know that. I don't know the opera other than the songs. It's like opera's greatest hits you know you know the song the, the kid sings it in magnolia if you've seen magnolia um and offhand i can't think of the fucking tune so i'm not gonna sing it uh i probably couldn't do it justice anyway but it's very good it's very nice it's beautiful 
Uh, but this movie is not very nice or very beautiful. <laughs> Although it does look good. It, it has uh, cinematography um, that is very nice. The camera operator was Vittorio Storaro, who is a very famous cinematographer. And this, um, I thought he did the cinematography on this, but then I looked it up and it, it was another guy. And Storaro was the camera operator. But in, in any case, he was there on this movie. Um, and I don't know who the other guy was. And maybe he's a, a great cinematographer as well. But uh, I'm not sure. Anyway. When it gets to the Western stuff, it gets... There's some good stuff, don't get me wrong, but it's like... It just becomes very boring. I don't know, the whole movie is kind of boring. It's like, it's not great romance. Uh, it's not great Western. It's just sort of all these things put together and... The idea to set Carmen in a Western setting is is a sort of inspired move. I, I like the idea. And Franco Nero is a good actor. He's not necessarily great in this. Um, but, but like, Klaus Kinski is a fucking great actor, known for being uh, going apeshit and being a fucking lunatic <laughs> on the Werner Herzog movies that he did. Um, but he doesn't even get a chance to really go full Klaus Kinski. He's pretty reserved, and that's kind of boring. Um, I feel bad to say it, because like, he's a good actor. He can do a lot of different things, but he just wasn't doing anything that was much of anything in this movie. And just kind of Franco Nero was the same kind of way. So I have to imagine that it's a directing thing where where the director... Um, either wasn't very good at directing actors or he wanted these kind of muted performances uh, which is fine if that's what he wanted but it, for me personally it didn't do much for me uh, there is a knife fight later in the movie that was pretty good but what I noticed about it is that it's it's all constructed through editing like almost like not quite MTV level fast editing, but um, a lot of quick cuts to put shit together to the point that you don't even know like what the fuck is going on at parts. And uh, the whole time, Klaus Kinski is like saying, come on, that's it, come on, that's it, come on. <laughs> and the scene is like literally like two minutes long. It's a long fucking fight, and the, he he fucking says it like the whole goddamn fight. So that got old. I didn't get a fucking gif of uh, a wave file of it because I don't want to hear it anymore. <laughs> I really didn't get it because I was lazy, but I also don't want to hear it again. <laughs> but anyway, the the thing was all constructed through editing, and it's uh, it reminded me of a thing that Sam Fuller once said and used in basically all of his movies was that if you can construct a fight in editing it may or may not succeed based on you know the audience accepting certain things based on the angles that you get based on all these different factors but if you get a couple of stuntmen 
that know what the fuck they're doing and that are very experienced in fighting and you get a camera and put it far away and you just let the fucking stuntmen go at it and you just capture it it will have a sense of reality because it's actually two guys going at it and you're far enough away from it that you can't necessarily see faces so you buy into it and you've become like this bystander that's happened upon this fight and you're watching it and it's just like oh shit look what's going on over there and it has a, a great quality to it and so <laughs> this is an example of uh, the opposite of that and how totally unconvincing it was <laughs> so that's all I have to say man pride and vengeance uh, was not great not great at all um that being said, apparently this is Franco Nero's favorite movie that he ever did. Uh, he explains that it's his favorite because him and like five or six of his friends who all started together um, always vowed to make a movie together. And this was that movie. So like the director, the screenwriter, the fucking Franco Nero... Uh, Victorio, Vittorio Storaro, uh, the cinematographer guy, like all of these guys were all like young together and getting into the film industry together. And so they all got together and made a movie and they had a great fucking time making it. So I'm sure it was fun to make and I'm happy that they had this wonderful experience. But uh, for me personally, as a viewer, eh, eh, it, it, you know, it wasn't great. So, uh, that's going to be the show. Uh, coming up on the site, I have a couple of reviews for next week. One of which is the Jackie Chan movie, The Tuxedo. The American movie, The Tuxedo, uh, co-starring Jennifer Love Hewitt. And the Shaw Brothers movie of the week is the Chang Che film starring Alexander Fusheng and uh, Chi Quan Chun, Disciples of Shaolin, the next movie in Chang Che's wonderful uh, Shaolin cycle. So look for those reviews on the site coming out uh, later this week. And um, until next week, I, I, uh, I say farewell <laughs> and adios. Say your prayers, little one Don't forget my son To include everyone I tuck you in, warm within Keep you free from sin Till the Sandman he comes Sleep with one eye open Gripping your pillow tight Exit light Enter night Take my hand We're off to never, never land
What a twist.